All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing? It is great to see you today. Happy Sunday after Easter. We're so excited that you're joining us. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job, Justin. It's such a great day. JD and Sarah, so glad. Thanks again for you guys sharing today. And it's just a rich day to be together. Thank you for those of you joining us indoors, those of you out on the pavilion. I love you, even if Steve says you're a little different. And uh, for those of you joining us online as well, we're really grateful to have you today. My name's Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor at Trinity. And you just watched that video. I really appreciate Chris Petnat, Chris Dowdy, do such a great job with graphics and video, getting us kind of, what is this about? And that's seemed very ominous for good reason, because John chapters 5 through 10 are that. They are a mixed bag of as Jesus reveals himself so clearly as the long-expected Messiah, people's reactions become more and more distant and even to the point of enraged. And so join us, you begin this first day with us as we continue in the book of John and looking at the way as Jesus reveals himself as Messiah, people's responses to him. So we're so grateful for you, especially if this is your, maybe your second week with us, maybe you joined us last week on Easter and wanted to come back and see what's going on, we're grateful that you're here. If you have a Bible today, if you want to open it to John chapter 5, that will help you track with us and where we're at and where we're going. If you have our app on your phone or on your tablet, you can open that, and if you go to resources, you'll see sermon notes are there under that section. Go to today's date, the 11th of April, and that will help you be able to track with us as well. Those of you in home groups, a lot of your discussions kind of spring out of the weekend message, so that'll help you kind of get ready for that as well. Well, before we dive in, I just want to remind you, I want to say thank you. 544 of you took a recent church-wide survey for us, and we're really grateful for your participation to be able to, again, I, I, we've been saying it, we believe that every church needs to be getting a pulse of its people, needs to be even redefining its vision because of what this pandemic has done <clears throat> on every front. And so that survey was really helpful to us to get an understanding of where Trinity is at. So what we're going to do two weeks from today, on the 25th of this month, in the afternoon, we're going to have a church assessment report. Now, this survey, by the way, was not something that the Elder Board put together, but we are hosting this event, and what we used was an outside group called Nancy Moore and Associates. And Nancy herself is going to be present with us that afternoon, and we are basically, she's going to give her assessment of the way that we answered. That's kind of basically looking at the data, this is what it means. She has been doing this for 15 years, and this survey that you use, the standardized portion of it, which was the first 89 questions, has been used in 2,400 churches. So there is a lot of information to be able to pull from the experience of what other churches have done and used this survey for that will be helpful to us as well. So join us 2 o'clock. We're expecting it to go till about 5. You can join us on the lawn. We're trying to make it available for everyone due to both our size as well as even just the concerns about being indoors or not. And as well, we hope to be able to have it available online as well. So either online or online on the 25th. 
All right? Well, we're going to dive in today, and as we look at this next section of John chapter 5, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to continue to offer himself some of the most amazing teaching that Jesus does in all of the Gospels is found in John chapters 5 through 10, teaching about himself. Some of the statements, when I first came, maybe in our first year, we did a series on the I am's. Jesus saying, I am the life. I am the way. I am uh, this idea of where waters of life come from. I am the light of the world. A lot of these I am statements are going to be found in this next section. So it's powerful. And then as you hear it, my hope is for those of us who have put our faith and trust and confidence in who Jesus is, this should yield a response of worship. This should yield a response of admiration and being so grateful that this is who our Savior is. But what's going to be contrasted is the way that the crowds respond. What's going to be contrasted is the way that the religious leaders respond. And so I'm going to ask you weekly to come into this time, get into the sandals of the disciples that are around Jesus. And even though they're the responses of so many are either confused or negative, let's continue to be reminded of the Jesus that we put our trust in. Here's our now what statement for today. Respond with obedience and dependence upon the Father like Jesus, your brother, modeled. This week, we're going to be people who respond with obedience and dependence upon the Father like Jesus, your brother, modeled. Number one, if you're taking notes with us, it doesn't take much to miss the plot. It doesn't take much to miss the plot. We're continuing in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second, what were these things, doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, let's give us some context when John, the writer of this gospel, says because Jesus was doing these things, what are the these things? Well, a few weeks ago, just before um, Palm Sunday, we did kind of a series response service last week, Easter, so you have to go three weeks ago. We talked about Jesus approaching a guy lying on a mat. Jesus goes out of his way to go to these pools, the pools of Bethesda, where those who were with sickness and with different difficulties would gather hoping to be healed. And Jesus walks up to a man who hadn't used his legs, hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. And Jesus asks him the poignant question that's been kind of resonating in a lot of our minds, do you want to get well? And the response to that, kind of a sideways around yes, and what does Jesus say? He doesn't even say you're healed. He just says, pick up your mat and walk. And the man does that. The man is miraculously healed. And as the man begins walking and what should have been this incredible response of awe and joy that someone who hadn't walked for 38 years, nearly four decades, now has strengthened legs, can walk around. He's carrying his mat. And the first thing the religious leaders do, what are you doing carrying your mat? It's the Sabbath. <laughs> And so and we, like, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, for some people, it's always about the mat. 
And they miss the whole point. And that's really what leads up to our time together today. That's the last thing we had read about. And we had said that the man finally identifies, well, Jesus is the guy who told me to do this. He's the guy who healed me. And that's the ensuing conversation. So when we see this, something about Jesus breaking the rules by telling a guy to, of all things, can you believe it, pick up his mat and walk around on this holy day, now it turns this corner very quickly for religious leaders. So far, in the Gospel of John, we haven't seen them be antagonistic. They've been confused. They've come asking questions of him and John the baptizer, but we haven't seen this. But now we read, and as a result, they persecuted him. The word persecuted can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, so it's important to go back in the original language and see what does this word mean. And this would be the definition, to aggressively chase, like a hunter pursuing a catch, and this is maybe even more specifically to harass or trouble. So that's what these religious leaders began to do, to harass him and trouble him. So we're not told specifically how that was happening, just that it was. And their posture now is this a persecution towards this rule-breaking, supernatural, power-wielding rabbi from Nazareth. Jesus speaks up and confronts them on their aggression, and he communicates why he healed the man in the first place. And this is the statement, my father is always at his work, that's the key word, at work, and I too continue to be at work right now. What was the Sabbath for was God isn't working and neither should you. So that Sabbath concept was people are not to work on the Sabbath. Jesus says something that sounds contrary to them. He says, my father's always at his work. He doesn't take a break from his redemptive process in the world. And I too, as his son, I am constantly at work as well. I don't take the Sabbath off. Now this is powerful It's powerful for a couple reasons. It's powerful for us to understand and rejoice in the fact at the times in our lives where we've wondered, God, are you paying attention? God, have you taken a break? God, are you listening? The answer is always yes. God is always at his work. But the other thing that's profound about this statement, it's Jesus saying, and as his son, I'm engaged in the same way. As saying, I am above the law. Better said, I'm the one who gave it. That's really what this is about. And that's what these religious leaders understand. This is fighting words for them. This is huge. It, for us, could read right over the top. We aren't a people who really understand Sabbath the way the Jewish culture did in the first century. And for us, we can just miss the whole thing. But Jesus is saying, the one who is talking to you is someone greater than even the law itself. And they're missing it all the way around. They're not missing the fact that he's saying something huge. They're just missing the obedience, the response in submission. And Jesus is saying that he doesn't abide by the Sabbath because he's on par with Yahweh, the giver of the law himself. Therefore, we're going to have some significant conflict. I don't know if any of you are familiar with a study called Experiencing God. It's by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. And it's a study I've done a few times with different various groups over the course of of my ministry. It's a powerful thing, and and you kind of go, it's got five days a week of study, and then it's like a a 12-week-long thing, so it's, it's pretty epic. But in the middle of it, what's fascinating is that it has 
seven, seven, seven big ideas. And the very first one that lays the foundation for everything, God is always at work around you. It's the foundational premise of the book. God is always at work around you. And it comes out of this passage that we're looking at today in John chapter 5. It comes directly um, from Jesus' words. And, and it reminds us every single day that we wake up that God is large and in charge. And that God is always at work, not just in my life, but in the lives of those I'm doing life with. In my relational world, God is always up to something. And see how Jesus' words just kind of amp their frustration and amp their anger because they correctly understood what Jesus was putting out there. He was aligning himself. He was saying in a unique way, I am the son of God. They caught it. It wasn't a miss. Sometimes in our culture today, we kind of talk about this idea that, that Jesus was just this really great teacher, this amazing humanitarian, and, and never did what kind of we think of maybe people who kind of lost their marbles, who they claimed to be God. That, that wouldn't be something Jesus did. That's what the religious leaders understood. And on multiple occasions, as we keep walking through the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus say it again and again and again. They caught what he was throwing. Look at the phrase. They tried to kill him. Uh, tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When we read that phrase, sometimes for some of us who have been kind of believers for a while and we've been reading our Bibles for a while, that statement that I just said, it can be like I could have said, and trees in Redlands have oranges on them. Ho-hum, like, tell me something new. But the part I want you to catch is not just Jesus' claim of deity, but I want you to catch the religious leader's response. They tried all the more to kill him. People whose own law that they cherished above everything says right towards the beginning, thou shalt not kill. And I find it interesting, had they been the members of an incredibly strong political party or a street gang or the mafia, that would make total sense. We're going to go get this guy. We're going to shut him up forever. This is a group of religious leaders whose own law says, thou shalt not kill. I want you to catch the contradiction. Now, they might have said, well, the reason he needs to die is actually found in our law, the idea of blasphemy. Look at the, the screen. This is from Leviticus chapter 24 in the law. It says, say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. So the context of blasphemy, though, is the idea of, of that of one who curses or demeans God, not one who wants to glorify him and says he's connected to him. So to say that Jesus was somehow blaspheming God doesn't even match the own description that they had in their law. And I think what this all kind of boils down to is that people, even good people that you respect, people that you might even love and trust, are capable of anything, given the right circumstances. This group of religious leaders had not only missed the entire point of who Jesus was revealing himself to be, the long-expected Messiah, 
but they were actively working against him, actively working against the very God they said they served. Man, that is just a sad reality when you stop and look at that, about this was their posture and their attitude. Look in your notes. Don't miss what they caught. Jesus was intending to communicate that his relationship with Yahweh was unique and privileged. Jesus was intending to communicate his relationship with Yahweh was unique and privileged, the kind that a son would say of his father. And for these religious leaders, those words rang of blasphemy, and they resorted to seek to kill him. Not to correct him, not to discipline him, make sure you catch that, but to shut him up forever. That was their goal. The relationship, by the way, that Jesus has to his heavenly father was something that John noted. We said all along, John, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, he really lays out this big picture for the entire gospel. These huge mega-themes come from there. Look at John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself is God, who is, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Number two in your notes, the son's willful submission and dependence upon the father is inherent to their relationship. The son's willful submission and dependence upon the father is inherent to their relationship. We continue on, John chapter 5, verse 19. <clears throat> Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. So watch, so that you may, will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In this next section of the book of John, we are going to spend so much time looking at the literal words, literal teaching of the one and only Messiah, the one-of-a-kind, unique Son of God. I want to encourage you as we read Jesus talking about himself or Jesus sharing about his relationship with the Father, don't let these words just kind of, just kind of glance off of you. But let them kind of sit. Let them be something that you marvel at. You saw that phrase, so that you might be amazed. Jesus is always after the same thing in our lives that we would respond in belief and faith. So even as we read these words that religious leaders are going to reject, man, they should be powerful in us. This is my God talking, and I get to read it. That's powerful. So Jesus continues on. He makes these powerful statements. And Jesus responds with a powerful picture in the first part of what we read, a powerful picture of the dynamic concerning his relationship with the father. Look in your notes. Verses 19 and 20 project an image of what a father-son relationship would have looked like in the first century regarding the apprenticeship, regarding the apprenticeship that most sons would have received from their fathers. The language that we read in the first couple of verses was this idea is that the son is watching, the son is learning what the father does, and the, fa the son doesn't do anything that he doesn't see his father do first. 
So it's as powerful, as I was studying this week, I was like, I was so impressed by that. It's this powerful language of apprenticeship. Now, interestingly enough, in the first century, and even today, when someone's learning as an apprentice, let's say even in the family business, the goal is to prepare that one in such a way, this son or this, this child growing up, to prepare them so one day they can take over and live in independence and be the one who's now leading. What's interesting about this relationship with the father and the son, Jesus uses apprentice-like language, but never for the goal that the son would be independent of the father. Always living in a relationship of submission and dependence. And I think that begs a wonderful question. If Jesus really is God, why does he need to have that kind of dependence upon the father? That's a very fair question to ask. If Jesus is God himself, why does he need to have a dependence and submission to the Father? I think that question has a few different layers to it, but the one that makes the most sense to me, as we keep reading the New Testament, as we keep reading the Gospels, is we see that it has nothing to do with the lack of authority. It has nothing to do with Jesus being lesser. It's all about role and it's all about function. I believe that the reason that Jesus continued in his earthly ministry to submit himself and live in dependence upon the Father was to model that perfectly for us, his brothers and sisters. You see, when I look at the the Bible, I often think of all these different kinds of words for Jesus. I'll think of Savior, I'll think of Redeemer, I'll think of Lord, all rightful words he uses. But this word brother... This word brother is a word we don't use as often. We don't, it doesn't come to mind as quickly. Look at the way writer D.A. Carson puts it about this relationship. The father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, and grants. The son responds, obeys, performs the father's will, receives authority. In this sense, the son is the father's agent, though as John goes on to insist, much more than an agent. Jesus is so much more than someone who is out doing the bidding, doing the work of the Father. He is, at the same time, God himself. And if that seems confusing to you, I would just say join the club. It's okay that that's confusing. But the reality is I really think it's based on this sense Jesus was modeling something for us. Look at the way the author of Hebrews puts it, related to that role of brother. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Verse 17. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Jesus, God himself, takes on human flesh, so perfectly God, perfectly human, all at the same time in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So this is the reality. Jesus lived out this function for a host of reasons, but I believe one of them that we read right over often is that he did it for you. He did it to model to you what should my relationship to the Father be like is that of submission and dependence. Jesus says that these same works, like healing a man who had been lame, who had not been able to walk for 38 years, was done in order so that the religious leaders, it might be for their good. 
the literal phraseology that they, in order that they may marvel. And I would just say, as we keep reading in John's gospel, even though the religious leaders and even the crowds are going to fail to marvel at the works that Jesus does, man, let's keep coming back to John's purpose for the gospel. That we, as a result of these things, these things are written that we might believe, that we might marvel, that we might be so overwhelmed with the incredible power and the love and the goodness of God demonstrated in Jesus. Then this part of the passage moves on to a different type of focal point, the focal point that we had for Easter last Sunday, that God is giving life to the dead. God has the ability to raise the dead. In his affirmation that the Pharisees heard correctly, he aligns himself with the Father. You heard me right. He goes on to give more reasons why this is true. As only God can raise the dead, so too Jesus has the ability to give life to whomever he pleases. Now, when we look back in the former covenant, there's actually three examples of people being raised back to life from the dead. Elijah heals uh, a widow's son. Elisha brings another young man back to life, gives him back to his parents. And then this wild, wonderful story that a, a dead man was thrown onto Elisha's bones and comes back to life. Fantastic, wild, all the above. So three different times in the former covenant, interesting, limited to the ministry and the life of these two prophets who followed one another, Elijah and then Elisha, three accounts of people coming back from the dead. Jesus is going to do that in his ministry as well. But in this, what we'll see is that Jesus means more than simply raising those who are physically dead back to life, as the, the rest of John's gospel is going to keep showing us. Remember what we read at the very beginning of the book. We actually sang about it today. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. You sang it this morning. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And that he that we're referring to is Jesus. The next part of our passage today will kind of identify that it's too narrow of an understanding to simply understand that Jesus simply meant to raise people who are physically dead back to life. Jesus will show that to us in this gospel in chapter 11, but I think it's the grandest level of what we're talking about life to be, life that is now and life that is forever, eternal life that comes when we respond to Jesus's invitation in the gospel this is the interesting thing to me. When we talk about eternal life, when we talk about the hope of heaven, I've had a couple of things in our church family in the last couple of weeks of people who have left this world. And uh, even this morning, I was looking over some social media and a friend of mine from the desert, his dad passed away uh, from cancer yesterday. And I just read these words and I process and I go, God, I, I, I want to keep my affections, I want to keep my goal, my vision towards what you have, for what you have in heaven. But the problem sometimes that I can do is as I look forward, I'm forgetting that eternal life begins now. Today, it begins. It began the moment you put your faith in Jesus, and it simply will continue on. Look in your notes. Jesus is saying that he has the ability to grant life, eternal life that begins now. And even with physical death still as part of the path, it will never end. 
We don't want to think about eternal life only being something after this life. Eternal life began, we'll see it later in our passage today, the moment you put your faith in Christ. That's powerful. It's good for us to consider. Some of you know that one of my favorite bands over the last couple of decades has been a group called Switchfoot. And I love them, and I love their, their words are very provocative. They make me think. And one is true from an album a few albums ago in the song called Afterlife. Look at the lyrics. It says, because every day the world is made, a chance to change, but I feel the same. And this line, and I wonder why would I wait till I die to come alive? Why would I wait until that idea of the afterlife? I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for the afterlife. And down in the bridge, I still believe we could live forever. You and I, we begin forever and I think those lyrics really identify really well that sometimes we can have this attitude of not even thinking of heaven at all. And that's a big problem. And we live with our head down thinking this is all that matters. And then sometimes we can have seasons, I don't think it's like lifelong for any of us, where we keep looking into the future with great reason and ambition that God, you have said, that's my future. And I think that's awesome. But there's something about living in the both and that realizing that eternal life has already begun. I am living it out in a broken world, but the reality is Jesus has promised me something beyond anything I can ask or imagine that's waiting for me forever. Not because I'm a good person, not because I've done something to earn it, simply because it's the nature of what salvation is. Jesus goes on to mention in the passage we read one other aspect of his deity, and that's judgment. To the Jewish mind, these two qualities, Jesus is going for the jugular right at the beginning. He's talking about the idea, these are two things that are true of me. Listen up, religious leaders. I have the ability to give life to whomever I please. And secondly, everyone is going to, I'm going to stand in judgment of the world. Man, if there was anyone ever claiming to be God, they got it. They got it before he even said these. Like, let me tell you a little bit more. And he goes on to share more. But these two things to the Jewish mind would have been overwhelming for a, a typical human being to ever say. God alone has the ability to grant life. God alone is going to be the judge of all humanity. And Jesus is saying, you're right. I'm he. You're hearing my message loud and clear Jesus communicates both of these roles have been given to him. And note why this is. We just read it. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Because the Son is the one to which everyone will give account, people realize that the Son is not just a figurehead. That he's not an underling waiting one day to have authority, but he's been entrusted with power and authority co-equally now. And what does this empowerment yield but that both the Father and the Son will be honored, not as one being inferior to the other? And the interesting thing is, what should all of this teaching have produced? If you're a religious leader and you're hearing Jesus give some substance, give some answers for those of us who are harassing him in that moment, when Jesus is teaching, what it should have evoked was awe. What it should have evoked was reverence. What it should have evoked was faith. But as we'll see over the next few chapters of John's gospel, it's going to lead to anything but those things. And my whole point to you is, as we are walking through the gospel of John, that's what it should be evoking in us. 
Jesus, you are high and lifted up, set apart from anyone, anything else. And Jesus makes that known, and that's what it should yield, is that kind of gratitude, that kind of just sense of his majesty. Finally today, number three in your notes, life begins when you hear and respond to Jesus' words. Life begins when you hear and respond to Jesus' words. We're in John 5, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed by this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to, li- to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Man, this is powerful, and there's a lot there to try to unpack. But Jesus is not backing down. Jesus is not trying to say something that will sit well with the religious leaders. Jesus keeps kind of pulling back the veil, keep revealing who he is so they get it loud and clear. And maybe for us today, more importantly, so we get it loud and clear. The very first verse of what we read is this amazingly pithy, beautiful statement about who we were and yet who we become when we respond to Jesus. Look at that verse again. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's now, it begins now, and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. This is the gospel message. This is the incredibly wonderful great news of a God who says there is a way to be made right. There is a way to be redeemed because of what we celebrated last week. This powerful, confusing kind of tension moment of Good Friday. Jesus willingly going to the cross, dying for our sins. And then we celebrated on Easter Sunday, but God raised him from the dead. That's what this is about. So think about this. He was sent from God himself, and it results in eternal life, a life that will not be judged. Note that. That's what Jesus said, moving from death to life and a life that consequently will not be judged, an eternal life that begins now. If that's a decision that you made recently, if that's a decision you made decades ago, I think it's a great thing to stop today and take stock. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that outside of you I was hopeless. Thank you that outside of you I knew judgment was coming. Thank you that outside of you all of these things about the separation I have from a relationship with God were true. But you, you, Jesus, you are the reason there's a difference in my life. You are the reason I can have hope. You are the reason I don't go to bed wondering how I'm going to stand before the throne of God someday and be judged because I know me. I know how I fail. I know why I'm worthy of that judgment. 
but you came and you covered that and you made a way for me to be right with God. Yay, God. Yay, God. That is great news, and that's the great news of the gospel. And it's meant to be something we continue to be encouraged by, not a one-time decision we make in our lives and, and now kind of trudge through the rest of it. It's something daily we're reminded of. It's only because of Jesus, like we sang today, that we have this great hope. And the great news is, like we said last weekend, no matter how deeply you descend, if you're God's kid, the promise is that you're going to rise. Note the name that Jesus uses to justify his ability to give life and his role to judge. He said it because God has called him the son of man. Jewish religious leaders would have been listening to that phrase and would have gone exactly in their minds to Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> Look up on the screens. Chapter 7, verse 13, in my vision at night, this is Daniel writing, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, language for the father in our context today, and was led into his presence. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's who they were thinking of when Jesus says, the Father has called me the Son of Man. That's exactly what would have come to their minds. And though we sometimes forget this reality, recognize that Jesus teaches that all people one day will rise. I want you to catch that. What we just read a minute ago, Jesus teaches that all people everywhere one day will rise. It's not exclusive or unique to those who have only believed in him. But watch the distinction. Both those who have responded in belief and those who have not will rise initially. Look at the phrase again. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. This same John, this same writer of this gospel, later on towards the end of his life, he would have this amazing revelation, and he would write it down. And in Revelation 20, this is what that's referring to. Look at these words, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens, they fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. This is what Jesus is talking about. All the dead. Every single human being will be raised. But look for this reason. All the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Watch. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Watch, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I want you to hear me today. I would not be a good pastor if I only told you good news and failed to tell you the bad. The Bible records both, and it simply boils down to this. Every single one of us born into a sinful world with a sinful nature, we come into the world dead on arrival spiritually. As a result, we need something to change in this lifetime. And the Bible talks about that God does a work in our lives when he calls us 
And there's a prompting, there's a quickening in our spirit that begins to come alive. And when that's met with faith, the kind of faith that John says, this is the whole reason I wrote this gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is the whole purpose. It all boils down to this. But note what Revelation 20 says. That every single human being will stand before God. They will be judged except for those whose names are written in the book of life. This is the God of the other book. And apart from your name being found there, the Bible is ultimately clear. There is no hope. So I want to be crystal clear with you today. I don't want you to miss this. The Bible does not hide this information from you. It wants you to know. I remember we did a series two years ago around Easter time, and I asked the question for how many of you in coming to faith was part of that reality and awareness of the bad news, an awareness that there was a real place called hell, awareness that there was a real reality apart from God forever without putting your faith in him. And I couldn't believe how many hands, it just made sense, how many hands went up. So why would I fail to tell you that news today? Because for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, I mean to tell you all of the truth. And the truth is, aside from what Jesus has done and aside from you putting your faith in him, you are still stuck in death. You are still awaiting judgment. And John wants us to know as he records Jesus' words, I have the power to give life to whomever I please. Can I tell you, if you're wondering, does Jesus have me in mind? Can I just tell you, if you're here today, I know he does. Because you're hearing this truth. You're hearing this opportunity to respond as John's gospel has been about this whole time. We just read it. The, the one who does comes from death to life. This is the great news of the gospel, but it's also the profound news of the urgency of the gospel. And don't be thrown off by Jesus' words thinking it's a works-oriented approach to salvation. He said this phrase, those who have done what is good. Those who have done what is good, he has shown all through this gospel and will continue to do so. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me. That's what is good. It's not based on how does the scale balance in your favor or not at the end of your life. That's what doing is what is good, is hearing the words of Jesus and responding in faith. So this week, let's be renewed in our gratitude for what Jesus has secured for us, eternal life that begins now. And live out this life towards the Father the way that the Son did. Look at this last phrase from what we read today, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. What a great posture for us to live in this week. I choose not, I, I seek not to please myself, but, to, but him who sent me. Our now what statement, respond with obedience and dependence upon the Father, like Jesus your brother modeled. Let's pray. Father, we begin this new series today. It's a series of a lot of tensions. But the tension we need not worry about the most is the tension of what that looks like for the religious leaders 2,000 years ago, but the tension that it evokes in us. 
what have we done with this message? For those of us who have put our faith in you, God, this week, would you just remind us again and again this great gratitude that is appropriate for this incredible way that you've brought us from death to life. And it hasn't been because we're so religious. It hasn't been because we have our act together. It's simply been because of what Jesus did in our place. That is reason for gratitude again and again and again. But if you're here today, I know, number one, I know you're not here by mistake. If you're here today and these words of Jesus, this revelation from John and Revelation 20, if those words grip you and you realize you are sitting on the wrong side of the table, you are sitting on the side that's expecting judgment, and if you're here today and you say, but I don't want that, then I have incredibly wonderful news for you. And it has nothing to do with going to a class. It has nothing to do with changing that bad habit. It has nothing to do with trying to clean yourself up so you'd be approachable, so you'd be good enough for God. The Bible says none of us can do that. But the good news that I have is what we've read today. It's Jesus. If you would, A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. If you would, B, believe that Jesus is the only Savior available. This Jesus, you've heard his words today. If you would, see, choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I need you. I need what you accomplished for me. I have no hope aside from you bringing me from death to life. I choose to put my confidence in who you are. And I want to live the rest of my life simply engaging that eternal life now. You can pray a prayer to respond to this great news of the gospel right here, right where you sit, and not let another moment go by. Please take this opportunity today. Father, we love you. Help us live in this posture of obedience and submission, just like Jesus modeled for us as we live your life this week. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.